Thanks everybody for coming. This is the Saturday morning meditation meetup. Um, for those of you who are new here, uh, this is being recorded. So if you have something you want to bring up that you would prefer not to have recorded, just tell me and I'll pause the recording while we're talking about whatever it is that you bring up. Um, and uh, let's see. Uh, the way that the the way that this generally works is that we just have people um, if they have some something going on in their practice that they want help debugging uh, you describe what's going on and and uh, we try to help you I'm the moderator and I generally try to answer people's questions but there are numerous other knowledgeable people who show up here um, there's uh, at least one other person here I'm not going to out anybody but there's at least one other person here who's in the teacher training program um, and Gilbert I don't think you're you've been in the teacher training program but Gilbert is a very experienced meditator so um, as are quite a few people here anyway so uh, so if you have questions to raise uh, uh, you, this this is a time to raise them um, and uh, you know, if you feel like hanging back and watching how the format works before you say anything, that's okay too. Don't be, don't be embarrassed. I'm sure that somebody will raise something. So, all right, so let's get started. Um, who wants to go first? Oh, by the way, uh, one more thing. There is a participants button down at the bottom of the screen. If you click on that, you'll see a little window will pop up and you should be able to, to raise your hand. There should be a button to raise hand there. So you can, and, and I will see your hand raised in order. So who could it be, the other teacher training person? Well, uh, I don't know, it's a mystery. So Chunsu Kim, I think you have your hand up. Hi, Ted. Hi. Um, I have uh, very two quick questions. I hope you can answer in very promptly. Um, so I want to talk about mindfulness. Um, I'm not really sure if Kuladasa outlined what mindfulness we should use. I feel like there are like different methods he proposed in his books and in his talk. And right now what I'm doing is, um, I'm doing Mahazi noting right now as my main form of mindfulness. But I realized that it's not really stable since um, my primary sits is based on TMI meditation instead of the usual observing the rise and the fall. So when I actually do Mahazi noting, um, like rarely do I um, can note consistently. Um, so what do you think about using uh, Mahasi noting in conjunction with TMI meditation. Does it hinder my progress in TMI meditation? Or do you think it's fine if I do um, Mahasi noting as, as my main form of mindfulness? Uh, well, so that's actually, there are actually a, a couple of different things in there. Uh, Shuladasa talks a fair amount about Mahasi noting at, in various contexts. Um, and uh, so Mahasi noting is, it, it certainly is a practice that, that, that produces uh, a kind of mindfulness. Um, 
So calling it a mindfulness practice is not inaccurate, but it's actually a Vipassana practice. It's an insight practice. Mm -hmm. Vipassana doesn't mean insight. It means something that provokes insight. So Mahasi noting is a practice for provoking insight. Um, and uh, that's really its main function. Uh, so, uh, the, so two things about what you just asked. One is, um, is it a good mindfulness practice to use right now? Well, that depends on where you are in your TMI practice. Um, one of the problems with Mahasi noting is that if you haven't, uh, it, it's, it's actually a very effective practice for producing insight. Doesn't work for everybody, but it does work fairly well. So um, if you haven't really gotten to the point where you've uh, dealt with a lot of sort of purification stuff during the, the Shamatha Vipassana training in TMI, then um, doing Mahasi style noting is a little bit risky um, because it can produce, uh, if, you, if you look at the, at the progress of insight, the progress of insight talks about going through various stages. And one of the stages you go through is called the Dukkhanyanas. And um, the Dukkhanyanas, uh, if you go through them, if, if you're ready when you go through them, the Dukkhanyanas are basically a recognition of what suffering is. So they're, they're, they're kind of a, a, an insight into the truth of suffering. Um, not necessarily a, a, a major insight, but definitely an insight. So, uh, if, so if, you, if you're in a place where you've dealt with a lot of, uh, a lot of your really sort of big triggers, uh, then having that insight is, is, is kind of like, oh yeah, I see that. And maybe it's a little bit like, but, but it's okay. But if you haven't dealt with a lot of your triggers, if you, if you have some, some, some deep issues that you haven't dealt with yet, then having, doing Mahasi style noting and getting to the Dukkhanyanas can actually produce a fairly unpleasant and persistent state of mind that you then have to dig your way out of. And that can take quite a while to dig your way out of it. So, so the reason why I'm giving you this long-winded answer to what you were hoping would be an easy question is um, whether you should use Mahasi-style noting to promote mindfulness kind of depends on where you are. And this is just like from a TMI perspective, kind of depends on where you are in the TMI practice. If you're at stage seven, yeah, Mahasi-style noting is a fine practice to do. Um, if you're at stage four, maybe, um, but, but I'd be cautious. Um, so that's, that's one answer. Um, and so if you're doing Mahasi style noting because you're hoping to get insight real soon now, then uh, that's not an unreasonable approach, but just be aware of, of the potential consequences. Um, now, as for promoting mindfulness, uh, Adrian, did you want to interject in here? Uh, well, I just wanted to say that I remember to hear from Chuladasa in the six or eight talks he has on the adverse effects of meditation. He uh, talks about Mahasi's noting style of practice uh, and he says that it has brought a lot of people into the dark nights of the soul yeah. because, because triggering insight uh, without being ready for it. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, so, 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 that's, um, so that's one thing to say about that. The other thing is, uh, so, Chuladasa defines mindfulness, and you've probably read this definition, and I'm probably going to misparaphrase it, so you should rely on what Chuladasa says and not my misparaphrase. But, but essentially what he says is that mindfulness is an appropriate balance of attention and awareness 
um, in a state where, I, I don't know exactly how he puts it, but basically in a state where dullness is not strong. Um, and the less strong dullness is, the more mindfulness you have, right? So if, you, if, you, if, you, if you've really eliminated subtle dullness, then your mindfulness is gonna be very strong. Um, if you haven't eliminated subtle dullness, it will be less strong, but you can still have mindfulness. Um, and an appropriate balance of attention and awareness means a balance of attention and awareness that's appropriate to your current situation. It's not always going to be the same. So, uh, so when you talk about doing a mindfulness practice, um, the question I would have is, what's your goal? So Tuladasa doesn't really say you should do a mindfulness practice per se. He gives you some, some exercises to do, and the TMI process produces mindfulness. So, so if you do TMI meditation, then your sort of default state of mindfulness will increase over time. And I've heard Chuladasa say in retreat that you should just try to stay present in the current moment and try not to do too much at once. Um, but these are all practices to do in retreat, so, so not necessarily appropriate um, in daily life. So mm. I guess my question is, what exactly are you trying to do when you do a mindfulness practice? I feel like, I feel like daily mindfulness um, strengthens um, my sitting meditation. Mm -hmm. If I don't practice mindfulness throughout the day, it feels like um, my mind is uh, agitated, uh, produces a lot of distractions during the sit. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I remember um, reading from TMI, um, the TMI book that if you don't really, I'm not, I'm not really sure if this is true, but if you, do, if you don't really practice mindfulness, um, it's like uh, filling in a leaky bucket. So I, wanna, I, wanna, I want to be able to patch up that hose. Mm -hmm. um, I think that, that's what he means, but if I'm wrong, please yeah. correct me. No, that's, so, so there's a, there's, that's, that's true, and, and sort of the, the, I'll give you a little bit of, of sort of uh, just regular old Buddhism on that, um, that uh, your meditation practice will be uh, more or less successful depending on how much trouble you create for yourself during the time when you're off the cushion. So if you have a tendency to create a lot of trouble for yourself off the cushion, um, then it's going to be difficult to uh, to meditate when you sit down on the cushion because there will be so many disturbances in your mind, so many problems that you have that you need to solve. So um, one of the purposes of mindfulness training off the cushion is simply to avoid doing unskillful activities that then produce stuff for you to worry about while you're on the cushion. So uh, so that's where things like the practice of virtue comes in. Like like try not to cause harm for to other people. Try not to uh, try not to do unskillful activities that 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 worry that then create worry for you. Um, so that's that's one aspect of it. Another thing is just like when you're off the cushion, uh, don't don't allow yourself to get sucked into worries. So check in from time to time to notice like what the state of your mind is. Um, are you sitting around ruminating about something that you can't control, that you can't do anything about? If so, stop. Now, when you stop, that doesn't mean that you're done, right? Because, you know, at some point, maybe two seconds later, maybe five minutes later, 
if this is something that's really on your mind, it's going to come back. So a mind, part of a mindfulness practice is simply noticing stuff like that. And so if you look at like Chuladas's mindful review, that's an example of, of a mindfulness practice that he recommends. Um, and the mindful review is basically just looking at like what you did today that disturbed your mind, really, right? What you did today that was unskillful. And, you know, can, can you not do that tomorrow? Can you work, are there things you can work on? Are there things you can notice about the way things went today uh, that would allow you to do something differently tomorrow? So that's, that's like a pretty basic mindfulness practice that actually can have a pretty profound effect on your meditation. Um, and I definitely would recommend doing that. Uh, you don't have to do it once a day. You can do it, uh, you could do it like once an hour if you wanted to, or once every two hours. I, I had a Tibetan teacher who recommended that we do it six times a day. Um, and there are various ways to do it. Um, if you, uh, if you have a list of, of the 10 non-virtues, you can go down the list of 10 non-virtues and just see what you did in the last, say, two hours that, that was potentially on that list. And, uh, and that, so that's one way to approach it. Um, you know, uh, I used to, uh, I took bodhisattva vows. And so I would actually cycle through my list of bodhisattva vows. Uh, you know, there were like a hundred and some odd bodhisattva vows. And I would just have like a list of them and a book and I would, uh, write six of them in my book every day and it would be a different six and I would just slowly cycle through the whole set and just check in and say, well, you know, did I do anything that was sort of related to this vow today? Something good, something bad. You should always look for good things, not just bad things, because um, it, it helps you to generate a little bit of a more positive state of mind than if you're constantly just nitpicking yourself. Um, and, and, you know, if you look for the things that you've succeeded at, you'll see them. And if you don't look, you won't. And that can get a little depressing if you're all, if you're looking for all the things you failed at, because then you don't, you know, so anyway, that's, that's a good practice to do. Um, the other thing that I wanted to mention based on what you said though, is um, bear in mind that your goal when you sit on the cushion is not to have a calm state of mind or to have stable attention on the breath. I mean, that's your ultimate goal. Don't get me wrong. Like that's, that's the result of that. If, if you're an adept meditator, that's what you should be experiencing on the cushion. But your goal when you sit down is actually to find out what's happening and then respond skillfully to whatever it is that's happening. Right? So, so if you sit down on the cushion, you're experiencing a lot of distraction, then, uh, then the task for today is to figure out what to do about the distraction. And of course, it's good to have done your homework beforehand, right? So off the cushion, can I avoid doing things that will create distraction on the cushion? But nevertheless, when you get on the cushion, whatever comes up, comes up. And it's not a failure. It's not like a failure today if, if like, you know, for the last 23 hours before you sat down, you know, whatever you did didn't magically produce calmness when you sat down, right? That's okay. Whatever, whatever happens when you sit down is what's happening and you just need to deal with that. So um, I would be a little bit careful of putting too much on your mindfulness practice. Um, of course, do the mindfulness practice, whatever practice it is, but, but when you sit down on the cushion, um, just deal with what comes up and don't, don't, uh, don't get too wrapped around the idea that, um, that if you had just done things correctly during the day, that you would have had a quiet sit. Cause that's not even like, what you really want is not a quiet sit, but a very energetic, joyful, engaged sit um, that is also quiet. 
and but it's it's like a different kind of quiet. So just quiet isn't good enough. Anyway, does that help you at all? Or yeah, yeah, that absolutely helps. Yeah. Okay. So, um, wondering if I could ask another quick question, just really, really quick. Um, Nobody else has their hand up. Okay. Okay, this is very confusing, but um, so stage three is mastered when forgetting rarely happens, right? Mm -hmm. Well, you, you move on to stage four and then you, you focus on the clarity of your breath, trying to allow all the distractions to come in. And when that happens, subtle, uh, subtle distractions arise and that leads to gross distraction and that leads to forgetting. Yep. So it feels like I have to go back to stage three and then do the, do the checking in, connecting and labeling in. So it feels like I, I haven't mastered stage three, but I, but it feels like I should be in stage four. Do you have any thoughts on this? Uh, well, so when you say you haven't, so one of the things that Chula Dasa actually somewhat regrets about, about the, 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 the blurbs at the end of each chapter about you have mastered the stage when is uh, that there's a tendency to think that you just do the stage until you've mastered it and then you're done and you and, and that's it and you never have that stage again but yeah. the reality is that it's much more fluid than that um, so uh, so a better thing to say would be you're ready to start doing stage four practices when the following is true about your at the end of stage three so so when you're experiencing forgetting only infrequently, you're ready to do stage four practices. That doesn't mean that you'll never have a stage three meditation again. And it doesn't mean that when you experience stage three symptoms, you know, you don't need to deal with them. But um, just remember that, that what you're trying to do all the way up through stage eight, until you get to stage eight, what you're trying to do is develop habits. So, and the habits are different for each of the stages. In stage two, the habit you're trying to develop is just uh, having that aha moment where you realize that you're mind wandering and coming back to the breath. That's your habit. And as that habit becomes perfected, then you find yourself in stage three. You don't have mind wandering as much. You catch yourself before you get into mind wandering. So that's a habit that you've built. And that habit will work most of the time. And sometimes it will fail. Sometimes you'll find yourself in mind wandering again. When that happens, well, you have an aha moment. You're like, oh, wow. Don't be, don't be discouraged, just do the thing that you're supposed to do at the aha moment. And um, so, and the same is true in stage three, you know, you notice that you've forgotten, you come back to the breath, that's, and, and in stage three, ideally, you get to the point where you're noticing gross distractions before they turn into forgetting. Mm -hmm. And either you're sitting there struggling with a gross distraction and it can feel like wrestling with an alligator that doesn't bite, fortunately, uh, but, uh, it can feel like that, or it can feel like you just notice the gross distraction and you calmly go back to the breath and then you go back to the gross distraction. There you're in stage three, but you're, but you're, you're getting on towards stage four. And if you, if you get to the point where when you do that for your whole sit, you know, you basically don't forget much, that's when you move on to stage four. So, uh, and then in stage four, you have a different set of, you know, you, you look for subtle distractions and a progressive subtle dullness. So it's like that in each stage. And the practices like close following and things like that are basically ways of keeping your, your attention on the breath um, until you forget or until whatever happens, happens, until whatever the problem is at the current stage happens. So, so it's, it's, 
you shouldn't worry too much about doing a perfect job of those things because what they're there for is just to keep you engaged in the object until something goes wrong. And, mm. uh, and, and doing those practices really well will not prevent something from going wrong. It's actually the, the, the funny thing about the, the early, you know, the pre-stage eight stages is that really the most important thing to have happen is for something to go wrong, at which point you notice what went wrong, think about why it went wrong, correct, and start over. And, and it's that little moment when something goes wrong and you notice it, that, that the magic happens. So, so, uh, so really, if you find that you're sitting and nothing is going wrong, then you should definitely go to the next stage. Or nothing is going wrong more than maybe once or twice in an hour sit, definitely go to the next stage. Don't wait, because waiting is just, is just essentially wasting time at that point. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. I think that cleared up a lot. <laughs> Good. Yeah. That's what we're here for. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, I believe Jeffrey raised his hand next. I had some questions about the four-step transition. Mm -hmm. So I'm just in stage two, I would say. And uh, probably more than half of my sit and sometimes the entire sit of 30 minutes is occupied with just the four-step transition, basically, and the six-point preparation. And so I, I'm wondering, maybe should I be putting more effort into trying to progress through the steps of the transition, or um, do I just need to wait until it's effortless to have my attention on whatever that uh, – the the sphere of the awareness is and maybe you could advise me on that yeah never seek perfection <laughs> when perfection comes to you it comes to you so so if your goal is is i'm going to do the four state four step transition and every step is going to be perfect then you're you're probably never going to get to the end of that because it's it's, it's you're, you're setting yourself an unachievable goal so so what you want to do in the four step transition is uh, you know step one get to the have an intention to do what step one is right so step one would be having your awareness just roaming step one is your awareness roaming freely so confession i don't do the four step transition very often formally, I just kind of informally do it because it turns out that the, the four-step transition has many different variants that are useful. And uh, my variant tends to be more introspective than extrospective. But essentially, so what you're doing is you're focusing, you're, 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 you're scoping down the focus of your attention more and more. And uh, it's perfectly okay to, to scope your attention broadly and say, okay, my attention is scoped broadly. Let's see how that goes. And just see how that goes for like a minute right? And don't worry if it isn't perfect, because like, what is perfect? And then scope your attention down to like, in the room, right? So, so I'm going to allow my attention to wander, but not outside of my current environment. And then uh, see what happens. Like, think of it as an experiment, see what happens, what, what works well, what doesn't work well, do that for a minute. Okay, now I'm going to scope my attention to just my body, I'm going to try to follow the sensations of the breath in my body. Okay, what happens? Now, if you're in stage seven or stage eight, what's gonna happen when you do that is basically exactly what you intend. If you're not in stage seven or stage eight, 
what you're going to notice is uh, that sometimes you're doing exactly what you intended and other times you're not. And that's okay because, because these are, it's essentially the same thing as when you're following the breath. When you're following the breath in stage two, what actually happens is you start following the breath and uh, next thing you know, you're off with the fairies, right? You're like having some thought about something, who knows what, and, uh, and, and you've completely forgotten that you were supposed to be following the breath. And that's perfectly all right. So, so because what you're trying to do at that point, like I was telling Chun Su Kim earlier, is what, I, what you're trying to do at that point is notice. Notice when something goes wrong, right? So actually, that's something going right when you notice. So, so you're doing that in the four-step transition as well. And if you expect to be able to do the four-step transition perfectly before you get out of stage two, you're actually going to find yourself going all the way up to stage eight doing the four-step transition. Before, and, and, and then you'll have a perfect four-step transition. You'll be in stage eight, which will be awesome. So, but it's actually, that's not really the goal of the four-step transition. The goal of the four-step transition is actually to try to get you to see the difference between attention and awareness. Um, I'm claiming. You could ask Chuladasa if he agrees with me. He might, he might or he might not. But, but, but I'm going to claim that the, the purpose of the four-step transition is, is to learn that. And, and if that's not something you really get clear until some of the later stages. Like, like you might have some real understanding of attention versus awareness in stage five or stage six. You're not going to have that in stage two. But the point of the four-step transition is to kind of experience this, this like moving around of attention, try to start noticing that awareness is a place that attention moves around in. And, and the four-step tra transition is really great for that. When you're, when you're completely open, you've got your, you're, you're paying attention to everything everywhere um, or allowing your attention to roam freely everywhere. Then you can see attention roaming freely everywhere and then when you shrink things down a little bit, you'll still experience, you'll still have awareness of stuff that's outside. Uh, say say you're, you've scoped attention to just anything that's happening in this room, right? You'll still have, you'll still hear sounds that are outside of the room. Those are an awareness. If you go and investigate those sounds, now they're an attention. Um, so your goal in the, in the, in the, in the, in the four-stage transition is basically to just create opportunities to notice that difference between attention and awareness. And so just do that for a little while, like a minute, something like that for, for each step. And then when you're done and you get to, to, uh, to the end of the, 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 the fourth step and you're just concentrating on the, you're just paying attention to the breath at the tip of the nose, then you can notice what's working and what's not. Uh, now you've scoped things really tightly. If you find yourself paying attention to stuff that's not at the tip of the nose, then um, just move back to the tip of the nose. So that's, a, you're, that's the noticing process. That's you noticing that something isn't what you intended. And anyway, I'm being very long-winded, but does, does this kind of clarify a little bit? Yeah, I think maybe I'm, the challenge for me is, for example, the book says that if you feel scattered, when you are in the fourth step, when you're just concentrating on the breath of the nose, mm -hmm. that you should then return all the way back into the second step, which is just focusing on bodily sensations. Mm -hmm. And so I was kind of, you know, it's very easy to just go into a feedback loop where you get yeah. into the, the fourth step and it's like, am, like, 
at this stage of my, you know, as a meditator, what does it actually mean to be properly focused on the breath? And when should I actually go back? You know, it's, I don't even feel qualified to judge that. So that was the challenge for me. Uh, So (laughs) I'll speak from my personal experience about this, which is that when I started meditating, um, it, I would never have the experience that, that, that the only thing I was, the, the only thing that was appearing in attention was sensations at the tip of the nose. And I don't think that that really happens until fairly late in the process. Um, so when you're in stage two, uh, your experience of the breath is quite likely going to be um, not just the sensations of the breath at the tip of the nose. Um, and it's not going to be obvious to you whether the sensations that you're experiencing are, are being experienced in attention or being experienced in awareness. So to think about what, it, so, so don't focus so much on results because it's going to be difficult to even know what result you're getting, right? If you, if you can't tell whether something's happening in attention or awareness, how can you know whether you succeeded in having it happen in attention, right? So instead, um, what you should think of as scattering in, 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 um, in the four-step transition uh, is uh, what, what you should think of as attention in the, uh, as scattering in the four-step transition is um, if you intended to do something and that's not what happened. So, and in, intended to do something, meaning intended to do something where you actually know what it is that you intend to do, not something vague like I intend for my attention to be on the breath when I don't really know what it means for my attention to be on the breath. So you intended to have some specific thing happen and that thing didn't happen, then that would be an example where you might want to uh, back off because you, you know, you're, you're so loosen the focus a little bit and go back. The other thing to say is, you know, you can, you can, you can meditate on the breath while you're in one of the four step phases. Um, so if you're, if you're having trouble telling whether your breath is scoped to the tip of the nose or whether it's actually in the whole body, that's probably, you're probably going to wind up meditating on the breath there. Your, ten- your intention is going to be for the sensations to be noticed at the tip of the nose. And a lot of times that'll be what'll be happening, but you'll also be noticing sensations elsewhere and you shouldn't feel like that's not okay. But it's important that you actually do the, 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 uh, the stage two practice to the point where you make progress in stage two or else you're, not gonna, you're never gonna get to the point where you actually see clearly the distinction between attention and awareness or you know, my attention is really scoped to just the sensations of the nose as opposed to the sensations of the nose plus, you know, and then just to make this a little more complicated, bear in mind that whatever you're experiencing in the present moment is always some kind of mental, mental construct, right? You're, it's always like an idea that you have about what's happening. Even very subtle sensations are essentially mental constructs. They're just more subtle. So, um, Part of the process, part of the goal of, of, of doing the four-step transition is actually to train your mind to think about or to, 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 to try to uh, be able to make the distinction between uh, 
the sensations of the breath at the tip of the nose and the sensations of the breath in the lungs, you know, so, so the feeling of the expansion and contraction versus the feeling of like, you know, uh, hot and, or warm and cool or dry and wet or things like that at the, in the nose. Um, and so you're essentially learning how to perceive stuff. And, um, and, and that's part of the process. So, so, and you're not gonna su succeed in knowing how to perceive stuff uh, immediately. So, so it's a process that will refine over time. So you, you really, I mean, you, you do wanna do the four step transition and get a clear, as clear a sense as you can at each step of what's going on, but then, then do, the, do, the, do the practice of following the breath of the nose as you experience that at present so that you can generate this, this um, so you can start generating aha moments and doing the aha moment practice, you know, rejoicing, oh yeah, yeah I, I noticed, and then coming back. Um, and just, you're essentially trying to get your footing. It's like, you know, when you stand up on a pair of skis for the first time, the first thing you do is you fall over, right? Or, you know, if you're lucky, maybe you, maybe you stand, if you're actually, if you're unlucky, you stand up and you go sliding down the hill out of control and smash into a tree, right? So, so a lot of what you're doing at the beginning is just getting your footing. And um, the four-step transition is a useful tool for getting your footing. Um, but just be aware that you're not going to really know what you're doing and, and don't feel like you need to have like this really clear idea of everything and get everything perfect before you proceed into the practice just like make a try at it, see how it goes, and then do the practice and keep doing that. And over time, what you'll find is that you have clearer and clearer understandings of what it is you're actually supposed to be doing. Um, <clears throat> oh, so yeah, there's a little conversation going on in the chat about attention versus awareness. And yeah, the attention versus awareness thing has, is actually something that I think Chula Dasa refined quite substantially as compared to other teachings. Um, so anyway, does that does that help? Yeah, I think it helps a lot. Actually, I just um, I wasn't sure. Maybe you, I thought maybe it's just normal. You have to work through this extended four step transition every sit until it, you start having more stability of attention. But um, it makes sense to me that like the focus of the practice should be on the breath. You know, that's something easier to master it seems like to me because in the if you're trying to have kind of stable attention on a very broad sphere like just the present moment for example mm. it's very to me it's very hard to stabilize compared uh, to focusing on something smaller here's a slight clarification um excuse me, your goal is not to have, especially when you're, when you're being aware of any, sense, any sensation in the environment at all, your goal is not to have stability. It's actually to, to just notice what's happening. So notice the attention moving from object to object. So like, you know, if, if, you, if you just open up yourself to whatever's going on in awareness, then you might hear a truck drive by and your attention will go to the truck. So just notice that your attention went to the truck. Um, don't try to be stable and like like encompass everything. That's not the goal of that practice. It's to it's to watch your attention move, and then uh, once you've noticed your attention moving in the broad sphere, then you shrink the sphere down to like just the room, and then see if you can like if you notice your attention moving out of the room, 
then move it back to something in the room. Okay, and then when you scope yourself down to just the body, then again, if you notice your tension going to some object outside of the body, bring it back into the body, bring it back to the breath in the body or whatever. And then, if, and then the same thing with the breath at the tip of the nose. So you could see, you could see that as a way to, to, uh, to develop more stability of attention. But at first, in the, in the four-stage transition, you're not stabilizing your attention at all. And then you're stabilizing it to just the room. And then you're stabilizing it to just the body. And then you're stabilizing it to just the nose. So, so that's, that's why you do the four-step transition, is to, is to essentially start with a completely destabilized attention and then slowly progress towards more stability. But, but then, yeah, you, you, at some point, you just need to go and do the practice because um, you're, you're not going to have perfect stability. And it's not, even, it's not even expected that you would have perfect stability at the beginning anyway. Okay. Um, yeah. Can All right, well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Sure. Yeah. I thanks for coming. Issue. I wanted to. Hmm? Can you hear me? Yeah. Go ahead, Michael. Uh, I was going to jump in because I had the same issue, and I um, have, after almost a year and a half, I still have frequently have days where I get stuck in the four-step transition loop because I get to like step one or step two, my mind wanders, and I say, okay, bring it back. Do step two again. Then it goes to maybe I'll get to three. Then I mind wander forget and okay go back and get through it again so i noticed the um i still have issues with that as well so i'm not i'm telling you you can there's some days where i have extremely where i'm more focused and i get through the four step tra transition um with no problem at all so i think that part of it is kind of um what's going on in your life and where your i guess stability is at is is, is if you and I always kind of got caught into those loops um, when I first started, especially, and I did 45 minute sits, so I could do a 45 minute sit and never get out of the four step transition. Um, but after doing it for a while, I would say one theory I have on that, which is related to what you were saying, um, Ted, um, when we do, for example, the body scan and we notice our foot, and we put our attention there and then we take it off and we can still kind of feel our sensations in our foot. I, I have a feeling that the four step is a, is a way of doing that when you're starting with putting everything in your peripheral awareness and then starting to focus you, because you put the attention outside and at first you still have it kind of sitting there in your peripheral awareness. So I have, I have a feeling that it's a little bit like a, way to start your meditation with um, having those sensations uh, a little more in tune with, 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 what, with, the, uh, with what you're doing. So it's useful. And I, I, that's, why I, that's why I haven't stopped <coughs> even when I feel like I get stuck in a loop. So I would say keep going with it. So do you actually you, you still, after a year, spend significant time in the four-step transition. You don't try to kind of purposely move towards uh, focusing on the breath. Oh, I, I try, <laughs> but uh, it's not always successful. And maybe, you know, I don't know. I'm, I, I don't have a very uh, consistent stage that I'm at because sometimes it goes higher or lower. So I might be not doing that wrong. It's just a question I've I've had for a while and you brought it up. So I wanted to, to jump in there that you're not alone. 
uh, on that. And um, maybe, maybe we're reading into it the way he wrote it in the book in a way that's other people aren't, that's keeping us looping uh, in there. So <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a question that, that, that uh, I wanted to like discuss a little bit since you brought it up and maybe we can get further on there. I know I brought it up to Ted um, previously a while ago and uh, you kind of mentioned it's a tool to get you there. It's not necessarily the focus of the practice. So sometimes yeah. I go try to go through the four step quick, quickly kind of, and I don't know if I'm rushing it. Um, I've done some Chuladasa guided meditations and he, he has a meditation where he starts with the four step and he kind of moves you along. So you could use that as kind of like a, a guidance to go through it and kind of get an idea of how he uses it and the timing he spends on it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that part of it is I sometimes have, have issues with kind of staying focused. So that might be why four step is, and, and even when I get past the four step still have kind of gross distraction or something. So that might be, um, just how it is for me right now. So, so Michael, did it make sense to you to, to, to talk about it in terms of, um, uh, having it be a, a, a process of scoping down? Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, it seemed pretty clear from the beginning that it was, it felt like it was kind of a filter that, that kind of brought you down to, to focus on the nose. But um, over time of doing it for a long time and wondering if I'm doing it right and trying to figure out why we were doing it, um, to, and progressing, you know, up to stage five and then you know, back down a little bit, it feels to me like it's a, um, a way to put your attention on things so they can stay in peripheral awareness after you focus onto your breaths, just like the body scan where you're recognizing areas of your body that you wouldn't normally recognize and they kind of sit in peripheral awareness without having to focus on them as much. So I feel that's kind of what I think he was going for with that. Mm -hmm. uh, he might have a different opinion. Um, and with that, it's, uh, I don't know, I think kind of helped me kind of um, to see the usefulness of it. And, and, and even though sometimes I can kind of mind wander and then go back to it, uh, just know why I'm doing it. And um, I think that could help. Cool. Well, what? Oh, go ahead. Sorry. One thing that I thought about, like why would it be important to do the four-step transition is it seems like it would be very valuable to be able to control the scope of your attention and, and move it where you want to. So it seems like that would be something worth developing. I just think that I'd probably focus too much on it so far. Yeah. yeah. Stop. It'd be nice to control your mind to, to tell it where you want it to go. <laughs> control is maybe not quite the right word, but um, one thing I did want to mention is sometimes people say concentrate and Chuladasa actually discourages people from using the word concentrate as a way to describe what they're doing. Um, and it's just for that reason. It's because of the filter versus, versus, you know, filtering or scoping. Um, your goal isn't to, isn't to, only experience the breath, right? Like when you sit, 
it shouldn't be the case that the only sensations that you're that that you're aware of are the sensations of the breath at the tip of the nose, but rather that the only sensations that you're paying attention to are the sensations of the breath at the tip of the nose, but you're still aware of everything else. You're just not paying attention to it. So it's just like when we're sitting here talking, you know, you might be looking at my face, you're still aware of all the other stuff in your visual field, but that's not what you're paying attention to. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that when you, when you start with the four step, you are using your attention in a broader sense and putting your attention on the, you know, what you're noticing. And then as yeah. you focus the attention more, it stays in peripheral awareness because you put the attention there. And that's exactly like the, like the body scan. That's my theory. Yeah. One thing, by the way, I, so I do something when I'm having difficulty with dullness, I actually do something that's, that's essentially analogous to a, to a four step transition immediately. As soon as I notice that the dullness is, is starting. Um, and the reason I do that is to make sure that attention is, or that awareness is still active and still, still alive and awake. Um, and so what I will do, and this, you could do this at the beginning of the four stage transition as well, is I will go out and I will look for the subtlest sound that I can hear. Um, so, you know, right now I'm in, I'm in at my sister's house in Virginia and the subtlest sound that I can hear is a truck driving by outside, which isn't very subtle. Uh, or maybe, maybe I could hear a bird or something like that. But when I'm in uh, Vermont, what I usually hear is the very subtlest sound is something is like a truck on the highway two miles away. And so that can be a really great way to just get awareness to be really awake and alive so that I know what's going on. And one of the things when you're experiencing vagueness, one of the things to be aware of is that vagueness is actually a symptom of dullness. And so if you're having a problem with vagueness during the four-step transition, then you may want to do some kind of deliberate thing like that to increase the energy of the mind so that it's less vague, and then you might actually find that things sharpen up and that the transition goes a little easier. Just a suggestion. Um, anyway, we, so we've been on this for a while. Uh, Evan has had his hand up. Um, oh, Scott asked if the breath being smooth is also a sign of dullness. And uh, I would say, depending on where you are, <coughs> If, if, if the breath, so the breath being smooth can definitely be a sign of dullness um, because, but it's also just a sign that the breath is very um, uh, conceptual. So as you go through stage five and six, you should start experiencing the breath as being a little bit more sandpapery and a little bit less smooth. Uh, but so yeah, decreasing dullness should definitely should definitely make the breath feel less smooth. Uh, so so let's go to Evan. You had a you have your hand up. Hi Ted, Hi. Um, I have a question. Uh, you mentioned I think with Tinsu about the habits that you develop at each level, mm -hmm. at each stage, and um, what to do with the habits after you've like mostly gone beyond that stage. So like you mentioned the uh, the aha moment at level two or stage two and then so um i find myself going when I, going up the stages that the the like habits from the previous ones kind of get in the way like i like the aha one i feel like i'm manu manufacturing it too much and it takes some time when i kind of find myself already back on the breath yep. and like 
sort of feeling open and the same thing with like level three then like the noting almost right. happens like i'm already back and then um doing like a nonverbal um noting but i was wondering if i should keep doing that because it develops a good habit that i might need like in higher stages or if i just said it was like the boat that got me there and i let it go of it exactly what you're experiencing is the habit working okay so so at first you were trying to develop the habit of going aha and mm -hmm. then uh, at some point that becomes automatic and the thing that you did when the aha moment happened also became automatic so you're still noticing the aha moment but you don't really need to do anything so so actually the indeed the very thing you should do at this point is just surrender and allow the thing the habit that you develop now to take effect without actually having to do anything and after a while you'll actually stop having explicit aha moments about about uh forgetting or about mind wandering because it just won't be happening so that mm -hmm. little process will be happening so automatically that you don't even see it happen anymore it just it just you just your mind seems not to wander if i have like um say i've been going along for a while and i feel like oh, i've had some subtle thought subtle distractions maybe some gross ones mm -hmm. i'm up then but i didn't have the aha moments back then um yeah so it, so if you so so you you what happens of course is um as you progress um your the techniques kind of get finer and finer right yeah. and that's a good thing right and if you find that's what you said um trying to put too much emphasis on generating the aha moment it'll disrupt you right mm -hmm. and if you're already past kind of you know the aha uh it's already let's like, stage two or something right there's, there's a stage three but anyway if you, yeah, if you're already past stage two, actually, you're you're um, you're, you're starting to actually catch things uh, sooner, right? The aha moment is pretty much uh, it, it's a cruder thing. Like only if you're you're already like lost, and it's like oh, that coming back, you experience it as a aha. But um, you know, and you can actually catch it sooner as in catching it as a gross distraction. You're like, oh wait, I'm experiencing this gross distraction that like is pulling me off course. And that's, mm -hmm. that's, that's less crude, right? Catching those gross distractions. Even less crude and, and finer is of course is catching subtle distractions, right? So um, those, all of these techniques are, are here to, um, they're like successive approximations of getting you closer and closer to what we were talking about at the very, very beginning was mindfulness, right? And, and um, you know, and, and it's those habits, in a sense, build on each other and replace. And it's, they kind of do replace the ones below. Um, if you cling too strongly to the uh, techniques, the very, very beginning technique, even the four-step transition, it, it'll make it hard. Um, not that it's impossible. Like, you could just focus on the four-step transition and stuff, and, but you'd be kind of like banging your head against the wall. Um, trying to get to stage eight, you know, doing this, you know, very, very beginning technique without all of that other techniques, the successive approximations, getting you closer and closer to actually doing, you know, the stage eight practices uh, more easily. Does that help? Yeah, that helps. The reason I ask is because I think I went up, I got up to like stage four, uh, four or five, and then like something happened in my life, and then I couldn't, I was dropped back down. And I thought, oh, maybe I didn't develop good habits. 
So then they came back and they was like, I got to really develop these habits and I don't want to let go of them kind of. Yeah. <laughs> and ha- I mean, you can see it as habits, but the, the mind is a com- complex thing, right? Um, and that, that whole boardroom metaphor with like, you know, the, the members coming and going, and you really have members coming and going. Like if you did develop mm-hmm. a habit, it's kind of there and there over time will be in some sense, some fading of it, but it doesn't fade like that much. It's, it's just kind of usually not, um, you know, it's kind of like buried, right? You kind of have to resurrect it. And so it'll, it'll come back quicker. Um, mm-hmm. But there's, there's, uh, the mind is in some sense vast, right? There's, yeah. there's, there's so many different of those potential board members. And so you're in, and you're, you're working to, uh, you know, transform kind of the, the mind system. So it's, it's a lot of work, but like in, you know, you just do it one, one little step at a time. And actually, as you do one little step at a time, the work actually gets easier and easier and you actually do more work kind of with each little step. Yeah. One thing to, Sorry, go ahead. Uh, no, go ahead. One thing to bear in mind about um, <clears throat> about uh, wow, I had in mind exactly what I wanted to say, and then it went. So let's see if I can reconstruct it. <laughs> um, so so wow, it's really gone. All right, let's move on. Uh, I'll see if I can remember it later. <laughs> can I ask yeah. another one? about um, intention. Um, I read uh, your like um, blog post about intention, mm-hmm. the intention loop, I think. Yeah. And then also like what Dasa wrote um, in the book. And it seems to me that all of the um, like metaphors for atten- intention, did I say int- attention? I mean intention. Yeah. Um, um, all the metaphors are like active. They're like, I know carrying water across a room or like things like that. But is there a metaphor that's just like a being metaphor? Because I find it seems like you could have an intention just at the beginning of your sit and then hopefully it'll come go along. Or you could try to have like the like um, micro intention going through and keep renewing it. But to me, that sounds like I was wondering if there's like a less active, more being kind of metaphor or so, way to do intention. First of all, bear in mind that micro intentions are a practice. They're not something that you want to be doing all the time. They're something that you want to be doing to uh, to get more familiar with with the whole with what intentions are and mm-hmm. how to how to how to use them. Um, but you're not going to be doing micro intentions in stage eight. Yeah, right. I, I so, got tired of them pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, well, the other thing is I've, I've actually, so, so I, I was, um, I did a, a, a home retreat at one point about a year and a half ago, and I actually got some advice from Nick, and he was, he was really keen on the whole micro-intending thing, and I started doing micro-intending the way I understood him to be teaching it, mm-hmm. and it had exactly that effect on me. It was, it was incredibly tiring. I actually had like a, a horrible meditation. It was like a retreat day and I was trying to meditate and I just was like, this sucks. I don't want to do this anymore. Um, and, it, and, and I actually had a little bit of an epiphany about micro intentions recently, um, which is related to the intend release notify loop, which is 
So, so there's a tendency with microintentions to get into this mode where you're like trying to hold the intention. But even with microintentions, you have to let go of it. You have to release it. If you don't release it, then, um, then you're just striving. So that's one thing to say about that. Um, as far as uh, intentions being being versus uh, action, um, so certainly when you're when you're in stage eight or stage nine or stage ten, um, then an intention that you set at the beginning of the practice realistically could last the whole practice, um, and your sort of main intention will last the whole practice, your intention to practice. In fact, actually, really, if you think about it, that even is happening in stage two, right? Your intention to keep sitting on the cushion until the bell goes off. That, unless, unless, you're, unless you have the, unless you develop the habit of, of deciding, oh, I'm done with my practice now, well then that can be a problem. But so, so in a sense, intentions in that are, are, are stable, right? It's just that the intentions get finer and finer. Um, and then the, your relationship to the intentions at first is I will do blah. And later intentions just arise and are acted upon. And so in that sense, there's, a, there's an aspect of beingness to the intention as opposed to, to activity, right? That like, you know, so I would like a cup of coffee. Well, that intention forms. I didn't decide I wanted to have a cup of coffee. I just noticed that I wanted a cup of coffee really. And then a whole bunch of other intentional activities occur. You know, I go, I grind beans, I boil water, I set up the filter in the filter holder, I put it on top of the cup, you know, I pour the water into the thingy, I stir it, I pour it into the filter. So all of these actions, and these are very complicated actions involving many motions of the hands, you know, many different bits of, of, of cognition. All of these activities are just happening. I'm not deciding to do these things. They're just happening because I know how to do it. I don't have to figure out how I'm going to make coffee. I know how to make coffee. I, I'm really good at it. Um, probably better than I am at meditating. <laughs> Sad to say. But um, uh, so, so that's, the way, that's the way meditation develops too, right? At the beginning, you really are having these like, I am going to do blah thoughts. And that's okay. It works. You don't need to. You don't need to like not do that if it's working. If it's not working for you, you don't have to do it, right? Mm -hmm. If the intention to to sit is just arising, then you don't have to like you know. At this point in my life, I mean, I've been meditating. I haven't missed a meditation day in since 2014, beginning of 2014. An intention. I don't have to do anything. At some point during the day, an intention will arise to sit, um, and. You know, and, and if I manage to get towards the end of the day without meditating, the intention will get quite strong. And it's not me deciding to sit. It's just that the intention, I've, I have habituated myself to meditating every day. And the attention comes up on its own. I don't have to do anything. Um, and that same, so that's a stage one intention, right? I'm going to sit today. And then the stage two intention, I'm actually going to like, you know, meditate, right? And then the stage three intention, I'm actually going to like notice and then the stage four, you know, so all of these intentions at some point, and this is the same thing with your, your, the automaticness of your habit. So at some point, these intentions become completely automatic. You don't have to do anything to have it happen. It just happens. 
And that's really, that's really the cycle that you're going through. It's always going to be the case that there's going to be something that you perceive as, a, as an issue that perhaps you need to, um, to address. And so the whole point of the intend release notify loop is actually uh, the intention there is to, to notice that there is an issue. And when you notice that there's an issue, then to refine your understanding of the issue and to go back and start over again and keep doing that. And at some point then that refinement process produces a habitual intention, which you no longer have to form. It just happens on its own. You decide you're gonna sit down. Just like when I decided I was gonna make coffee. At first when I decided I was gonna make coffee, I really had to think about what I was gonna do. I had to analyze the process. I had to say, well, I need hot water. Okay, I know how to make hot water, right? So that's the, I, I need to think about that and then, and then the hot water making happens because I already knew how to make hot water. Oh, I need to grind the beans. Well, you know, so it's just like that for meditation. At first you're, you're, you're figuring out that you need to grind the beans, that you need to set up the filter cup holder. But after a while, it's just happening. And then at that point, you know, now the intention gets a little more subtle. It's like, well, what kind of beans am I going to have or something like that? Well, when you're at stage eight, it's kind of like that. Like, am I going to have like, you know, meditating on the zero point beans today or am I going to have, you know, whatever. So, so your intentions then become just like, what meditation am I going to do? And then once you've decided what meditation you're going to do, then the whole rest of the process just unfolds automatically. And even the deciding of what meditation you're going to do may actually become automatic. So like you may sit down, just I'm going to sit and then I wonder what I'm going to do today. And then an intention arises to meditate on the zero point. Then you do that. Right. So, uh, and, and uh, so for a lot of people who've gotten to that point in their practice, the mind system just automatically figures out what needs to happen today. And then you do that. So, and, and in fact, actually one of the things that can damage your meditation is if you think that you have to do something, and so like, oh, I'm going to decide today, like my meditation has to be about blah. And then your mind system is like, no, no, the meditation should be about this. And there's this struggle. And if you win this, if you win the struggle, then you actually wind up having a wasted day because you didn't do what you needed to do because your mind already knew what you needed to do. So, yeah. So letting go of that like intentional process can be useful. Okay. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Sure. It's helpful. Yeah. So, uh, James, you've had your hand up for quite a while. Thanks, Ted. Hi, everybody. Um, I was just looking for a little bit of feedback on something that's, I don't know if it's been a long-term problem as such. Um, so I've been attempting stage five body scanning for quite a while. Um, and so I've been doing TMI for almost two years and, and I dabbled a little bit in bits and pieces before that. And, I've always had a bit of a problem with any sort of body scanning practice in terms of being able to um, feel much in the way of sensations and therefore keep my attention in certain places. Um, so, you know, if I stick my hand, my finger on my knee now, I can feel my hand on my knee and I can keep my attention there quite easily. But if I take it away and I try and feel the more amorphous, um, you know, somatosensory sensations there then there's relatively little sensation so my attention is difficult to stabilize there um, so that's really the kind of crux of what happens and so I'll get to a point in the sit where um, 
gross distractions aren't really a, a problem. There's a little bit of flittering of, of um, subtle distractions going along at a reasonably low level. Um, strong dullness isn't a problem and it hasn't been for quite a while unless, of course, I've had a, a bad night's sleep. Um, and obviously subtle dullness is, is there, but it tends not to be progressive unless, of course, I've had a bad night's sleep. Um, and so I'll start moving towards a body scan. And what I've noticed is that um, unless I do something to get rid of a bit of the subtle dullness, um, like if I go into the body scan with too much subtle dullness, then it's just horrendous. My, it, I won't feel uh, almost anything, even in some very obvious points where there's you know, pressure and contact. Um, and so my mind will wander. And then I'm, you know, experiencing the whole, the whole mind wandering thing. Um, and so I was just wondering if you had any tips on maybe how to deal with uh, getting the results of a body scan for somebody who has a challenge that in actually doing the body scan. So uh, you're, you're describing that as if it were unusual. Okay. <laughs> and I would like to reassure you that it is not. <laughs> Um, what you're describing is exactly right. If you don't have enough, um, if, if, you're, if, you're, if your dullness, if your subtle dullness is too strong, then it will be difficult to, to pick up sensations, subtle sensations in the body. And so you have to do something to get your dullness to be less strong. Um, and there are lots of things you can do. The practice that I was describing earlier, where you look for the subtlest sensation you can find in the environment, I found is a really good way of uh, getting rid of, of enough dullness that I can do practices that require more subtlety. Another thing you can do, uh, it's a practice that I do sometimes, particularly if I'm in an environment that's not particularly noisy, is um, try to feel the sensation on the skin between my little toe and my second toe. And I know that sounds a little bit weird, but it's sufficiently weird and, and, and um, uh, specific that I found that it's possible to develop the habit of doing it. And basically the reason I think it works is because I kind of start by noticing, so your foot is actually a fairly sensitive part of your body. Um, you'll feel uh, fairly subtle sensations, like, like if there's any motion of, of wind, and it helps if your foot is out in the air and not like buried. Uh, and you can do it with your hand as well because your hand is similarly sensitive. Um, just try to notice any sensation at all anywhere on the hand and then uh, once you've noticed that, that sensation, use it as a guide to get yourself to the more subtle sensation of the, the skin between the two extremities, right? And then uh, when you notice that sensation, when you're able to, to, to get a real sensation of that, suddenly things tend to, to jump into focus. And at that point, you can do the body scan a bit. And then you may find that the dullness comes back. And then if it does, just do that again. Um, what you do to, to figure that out may be different for you than it is for me. I, uh, I play piano, and so like, like uh, finding sensations in my fingers, I can use my piano playing uh, sense memory to, to access that, and that can be really helpful. Um, but for you, it might be something different. But just see if you can find something. And also the sensations of the breath at the tip of the nose, um, you know, I mean, you're trying to get those to be sharper by doing the body scan, but it may be useful to just like notice if they're sharp and see if you can do anything at all to get them to be more sharp to the point where you can start the body scan. Because if you think about it, 
what's going on is that you're kind of at the cusp between stage four and stage five when you're having the experience that you're describing. If you were fully out of stage four, probably uh, you, you would be able to just start the body scan and it would work. But, um, but you're just staying in stage four isn't ideal either because then you're not really going to, you're not going to get the sharpness that you need. So you kind of have to navigate that saddle between those two stages until you get to the point where you can just automatically generate enough uh, or, or find enough sensation to, to bring up the sharpness, to, to reduce the dullness enough so that you can really do the body scan nicely. Um, so you just need to find that thing, whatever it is, and play around with it. Um, since sounds in the environment can be helpful. Scents actually can be helpful. Another thing that I've um, sometimes done that's helpful is to just try to notice every sensation that I can. Um, so don't restrict it to any part of the body. Uh, don't restrict it to a particular kind of sensation, but any sensation that I can anywhere. Um, and as many of them as I can. And just do that for, for, for a little bit and see if that decreases your dullness enough that you can start the body scan. Um, it's actually, that's not an easy practice. And your goal is not to, not to do that practice perfectly. It's just that it's sufficient. It's, you're, it's enough of a reach that sometimes having an intention to do that can actually decrease dullness enough that the scan can start. And it sounds like Gilbert has something he wants to say. <laughs> well, one thing I'll say, of course, is that um, as you're in stage five, um, right now you're working at kind of overcoming the, in some sense, the, the blanket of subtle dullness. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, one thing to be aware of, of course, is as you start overcoming the blanket of subtle dullness, uh, it'll, there'll be a tendency for things to be a little, a little bit sort of disruptive of your meditation practice, um, because you are starting to pay attention to the stuff that you, your mind has filed away as like, not important, not, you know, pleasurable, just like ignore, ignore, like, don't don't pay it you don't you don't need to focus on this um so yeah so one thing i want to as a, as a caveat and the other thing actually um yeah so pretty much well all the techniques is you're, you're going to be working to try to increase the energy level of your mind and as you were talking about the the uh what came to me was like the the goenka vipassana body scan that's, that's a technique that's actually pretty good generally, or it can be pretty good at increasing the energy level of the mind. And the one thing about that one though, um, is that uh, you're always, you're keeping attention moving, right? And so you, you, he always has you start at the top of the head and you're sort of kind of scanning down, scanning down, scanning down. Um, and that could be a way um, to sort of help you to start you know, tuning your mind to notice sort of sensations, right? It's like, okay, look from the very top, do you feel anything? And you, you know, usually you can, you can feel something. Um, the thing that people get hung up on is of course, uh, in some sense, it's so quickly, like they feel it, but then they file it away as it like, it's not important. It's not salient. It's, you know, don't, it's not something to pay attention to. So in, in stage five, you're actually undoing all of that, or you're trying to undo that, that, okay, this ordinary sensation is something to pay attention to. Um, so 
you know, that's something to potentially consider trying is like, oh, okay, like, let me try a little bit of um, uh, just like scanning, like all the way scanning, sweeping kind of your, your from the very top all the way down. Um, and you can try it slowly and you can try it sort of speeding it up. Um, yeah, the one thing, like I said, that, that um, just be aware of is that is not how Chuladasa teaches the, the body scan. He does a more um, kind of gradual, I think, which in the long run, I, I, I think it's probably, uh, yeah, you're more likely to have a more more stable thing and you're, you're less likely to have um, sort of rapid increases in the energy level of the mind, um, which can sometimes, yeah, be extra sort of, or a little like disruptive. <laughs> Because so, you could, you, you can get into a flow state, right? Like you can, you know, if you get into a flow state, like con like, and that's sweeping, and then you start getting more and more sensations, more and more sensations, and then the energy level like really, really increases. And then if it increases so much, you're not used to dealing with an energy level. It's like, you know, it's, it's easy to just the, the whole uh, shamatha to completely like blow up. <laughs> So yeah, it's, that was reassuring to hear. And, and in fact, the um, that sort of practice where I just notice any sensation is something that I, I kind of came across that often will work to to bring a little bit, if not a little bit more energy. It, it allows me to actually keep doing it without the mind wandering. Um, and then if I, if it, if that works to a certain extent, then I might be able to move into a more gradual step by step. Um, and that's usually where it, it tends to go awry a little bit. Um, and so the only other thing is, you know, I'm, I understand the, the point of the body scan is to keep increasing uh, sensitivity of the, the um, sensations at the nostril. And what I've noticed over the last maybe two or three months is I'm actually losing sensation. I feel like, I don't know if I am or not, I feel like I'm losing sensation at the nostril. Um, Having said that, now that I say it, I don't know if I'm losing sensation of the nostril or if I'm gaining um, awareness of a set of sensations around the the forehead and the bridge of the nose. It's, it's uh, that. It's that. Okay. Yeah, that was my suspicion. Uh, any any comments? And it's 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 that, and it's also, of course, um, the your experience of the breath is becoming less conceptual. <laughs> right because a conceptual breath is um actually and, and typically a non-meditator they like i'm breathing and if they know they're breathing there's like the in there's a, a tiny little sensation of the inhale um and then the mind fills in so much gap about uh what the rest of the breath is you know the inhale and so it feels like it's just a steady thing but as your mind sharpens up actually it's more exactly sandpaper like or um you know a little little ping maybe pings of the the sensations that you thought of the breath and meanwhile between that ping you, there's a knowing there's an awareness of a gap but you know what is that but if you if you're aware of a gap that that's awareness actually that's a good thing um so it, it's it's but it's challenging because because you are um changing your experience um of the breath and it's something that's completely new and so it's easy to think like oh wow my it feels stable and yet you know i'm, I'm losing it but yet there's it, but yeah but actually it is you're you're kind of it's getting in some sense crowded out or 
um, because you're more aware of other stuff, which is, which is good. And that's actually what you want. Okay, cool. Yeah, I've had the sensation recently of walking down the stairs and feeling everything jiggle a little bit, and I just thought I was getting fat. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks, guys. Was that like a, does this t-shirt make me look fat question? <laughs> anyway. Related uh, paranoia. My wife and I used to joke around about that a lot. But uh, anyway. Uh, so uh, we're getting close to the end of our usual hour and a half, um, but we still have time for another question if somebody wants to jump in. Jeffrey. Sure. Yeah. Oh. Go ahead, Jeff. Okay, I just had a quick question about how to uh, progress my practice in, in terms of um, getting to 45 minutes per day and adding in uh, meta practice or walking meditation practice. Um, right now I'm at 30 minutes a day. And so what would my next step be? Should I start adding five minutes a day every week or start adding, you know, some kind of meta or walking once a week? Like how should I progress? Um, so I bet you that there are, you will get more than one answer if anybody else feels like answering that, but I have a couple of suggestions. Um, one is, uh, definitely consider adding some walking. I think you'll find that adding walking meditation practice will, will help you on the cushion. Um, don't try to get too fine about the walking meditation. Like there's a tendency to go all the way to like, I'm going to notice, you know, all nine steps of the, of, the, of the raising and lowering of the foot. And that's really not the place to start at all. The place to start is, is actually in the practice where you just walk and just notice what your attention is doing. Notice your attention moving from this to that. You know, oh, I'm paying attention to that bird. Oh, I'm paying attention to that tree. Just notice that. Do that. So I would suggest maybe adding 15 minutes of walking meditation right now. And then um, the other thing is think about, like, what's going on in your practice and how you feel at the end of the sit. Uh, at the end of the sit, do you feel frustrated that you didn't get to, to do more? Uh, do you feel like you were kind of um, coasting at the end of the sit and you didn't really... Uh, have enough energy to continue. That's a thing to be thinking about. Um, you can get a huge amount of benefit from a half an hour a day. Uh, I say this from personal experience. Um, you know, when I was, I was going through a, a time in my life when my mom was having some, some health issues and I just didn't have time to sit for more than a half an hour a day. And so I would sit for half an hour in a day, a day and I was frustrated by how little time I had to meditate. And so I was super diligent. And that was just incredibly beneficial. Like just having that motivation of like, I am going to make the best possible use of this half hour that I can. Um, not like in a striving way, but just in a like, you know, I'm, I'm going to figure out what it is that I need to do on the cushion today and I'm going to do it. Um, so, uh, so I would definitely encourage you to, to, to think about that. Like, uh, do you find it frustrating that you're not meditating 45 minutes a day? If you do, what's your obstacle to meditating 45 minutes a day? If it's that you can't sit that long comfortably, figure that out. If it's that you get frustrated, like at, at the 35 minute mark, you just desperately have to get up off the cushion, that's a different thing and you need to work with that. 
So, um, so you could certainly try adding five minutes a day and just see what happens. Like if you add five minutes, does, do, do you find that you're using those five minutes effectively? If yes, keep doing it. If no, figure out why you're not using them effectively before you continue adding more time. So um, there are some benefits uh, that I will tell you about just so that, so that you get excited and want to do them. Um, if you get to about the 40 minute mark, there's a tendency for interesting things to happen. Not necessarily like super weird things, but just, you know, you, you may find that your meditation just gets, it's, it's, like, it's like you're finally, you get your second wind or something like that and you're kind of in gear. And, and, and so that can be a really nice experience. If you can get to the point where you're comfortably getting to 40 to 45 minutes, then you may find the last few minutes, the last 20 minutes or the last 15 minutes of your sit are really um, deep. This is not, this doesn't mean that you're getting to be a better meditator. It, it's just like a shortcut to getting some of the benefits of uh, the later stages because at that point, a lot of the stuff that was disturbing your mind has settled down. And so you don't, your habits don't need to be quite as strong for your meditation to be stable. So that's something to think about is just like a sales pitch for extending to an hour. Um, Tom had a question, but then it looks like he left. Rats. Um, all right. So, uh, so did that answer your question? Yeah, it kind of sounds like I probably shouldn't <laughs> add, add time to the meditation yet. And maybe I should just look at adding extra sessions, maybe of walking meditation. Uh, I don't know, is meta meditation not recommended at stage two? So I have mixed feelings about that. Um, meta meditation is a really great meditation to do if it's a great meditation to do. And it is for a lot of people. But some people, meta meditation is, is an insight practice. It's a practice for, for generating insight. Um, it's also, it also raises the energy of the mind if it's working for you. Um, and it has a lot of benefits. I mean, it's, it's a great practice to do if it feels beneficial. But do not feel obligated to do meta. Don't feel like you should do meta. Just try it and see if it seems to be beneficial to you. Um, if you find that you're experiencing a lot of resistance and upset and stuff like that, don't keep going um, because it, 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 you may need to, to develop more uh, stability before you, before you proceed. It just depends on you. Um, the reason I say this is because I know people who have had, who've done meta practice and actually experienced quite negative results from it because of issues that they had or because of, it just wasn't, the thing for them to be doing at the time. And, and everybody thinks meta practice is great for everybody. And so there's always this tendency to just recommend meta practice for everybody. And I just don't want you to feel like, don't, don't feel pressured in doing meta practice. Do it if it works for you. If it does, it's wonderful. Um, definitely recommend it, but just don't feel like, you know, there's something wrong with you if you're doing it and it doesn't work the way you want it, you were hoping it would. Okay, thank you. Yep. Okay, uh, we've got maybe five more minutes if somebody wants a last word. Timmy. Um, yeah, I just wanted to join today specifically. I wasn't going to because I was busy, but I just wanted to touch base just for the Sangha benefits. Um, and yeah, it was, it was interesting. Some of the feedback that I got from you and Gilbert last time about um, the body scanning stuff and that raising the energy of the mind and getting out of dharma really, yeah, really resonated with me. I missed um, 
a day of meditation recently last week or something and that brought me to a different place again and I for some reason drank a glass of red wine which I don't usually do but it affected me so much my mind was so the next day so so unwieldy it was ridiculous it's just interesting to explore the darkness again and also to work with that and not push it away so much um but yeah I just wanted to touch base and say that the body scanning thing is really useful um for me at this point in my practice and also what you said to um I forgot whose name it was now but the person who was just talking um about uh what was it about increasing to an to an hour these things mm-hmm. also really lovely and also what you said about meta I, I had a long time struggling with meta practice and it really became this reason for feeling worth unworthy and these things like, I'm not good enough um and now it's also nice for me but yeah just wanted to touch base nice mm-hmm. to be here cool thanks for coming good to see you good okay we still have time if somebody has a last question Andrew, were you saying something? You're muted. Or Andrea. My wife's name is Andrea, so, okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, so I guess if nobody else has anything they want to raise. Uh, oh, Scott, does dullness always follow distraction in terms of practice? Uh, Progress. So, uh, dullness and so when you when you successfully deal with distractions, dullness often follows that. Yes, um, and so there's always this cycle. Particularly in stage four, it's very it's very marked. But also in stage five and six, um, there is a tendency to uh, to do something that that decreases dullness, and then you have distractions, and then you do something to deal with the distractions, and then dullness becomes the thing. Either it becomes the thing because you just, ha- it was there to begin with, and, and now, now it's the next thing to work on, or it becomes a thing because actually scoping attention very tightly can make the mind less active, and then the mind starts to shut down, and dullness arises. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's very common to see the, the, that's why stage four isn't just one thing, because you can't just be doing one thing when you're dealing with dullness and distraction. You have to, you have to, if, if, if you're predominantly experiencing distraction, you, do, you deal with that, and then you will find that you're predominantly experiencing dullness, and then you have to deal with that. And at some point, you get to where you can actually start doing stage five practices, and that can really increase the amount of distraction that you have once you're successful. So, yes. All right. Uh, I, I am going to claim that everybody has uh, had their shot. And uh, it's great seeing you all. Thanks for coming. I hope to see you again. And have a good week. Thank you. Mm